Well, good morning. My name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors at our Norton campus. It's great to be back with you again. I saw many of you out Wednesday night for the combined worship service at our Norton campus. Uh, what a great time to see our bands come together and play together and then have that opportunity to worship together. Uh, if you weren't able to be there, hopefully uh, next one, uh, <clears throat> you'll want to not miss it. Uh, it was a great time. Well, it's uh, Great to be with you this morning. I've been gone for a little bit. Um, <clears throat> help lead a mission trip to uh, Zuni Pueblo, uh, New Mexico. And it's like, New Mexico, is that a mission trip? And it's like, yeah, it is. Um, it's interesting that the Zuni Pueblo are one of the least reached nations in the world. And they're right in our backyard. And so it was a privilege to take a bunch of young adults uh, to go out there and, and run a <clears throat> Bible camp for them and, and just build relationships with, uh, with the kids. So it was a great time. And then my wife and I went on to California for a conference, and then uh, we decided we're, we're celebrating our 29th anniversary uh, today. Um, <clears throat> And so we extended our, our time out there, hiked Olympic National Park, uh, uh, explored San Francisco, Seattle a little bit. Uh, it was a great time. First time, uh, other than a long weekend, that we have spent that much time together without kids. So it was very healthy for us, and it was just a, it was a great time. But uh, now we're back, and uh, she's ready to start school almost, and, um, and I've jumped right into it. Uh, last week, uh, Joel led us into our first conversation of this three-week series called Sent. So last week, we made the connection that a lot of Christians are bored. They're bored with the church, they're bored with Christianity because we've made Christianity primarily about sitting. Um, we sit in church, we sit in our groups, we sit in Bible studies, we sit in prayer, we sit and talk. Uh, a few years ago, I developed back problems. The number one reason, I was sitting too much. <laughs> in the same way, as followers of Jesus, we weren't made to simply sit. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there's times when we need to sit, like this morning. Um, but as followers of Jesus, our primary position is not to sit. Why? Because we have been sent. And so if all we do is sit, we've missed the essence of, of what it means to follow Jesus and what we've been called to. And so following Jesus is not about sitting around, but being sent out. And I don't, I don't know who said this, but I like it. <clears throat> they said, I believe churches are meant for praising God, but so are 2 a.m. car rides and showers and coffee shops, the gym, conversations with friends, strangers, etc., don't let a building confine your faith because we will never change the world by just going to church. We need to be the church. You see, the church is full of people who have been sent, who, who have a mission and purpose that can only be accomplished by shining the light bright on Jesus as we go. Luis Palau once said, the church is like manure. It's kind of a strange thing to say. But, but he continues, he says, the church is like manure, pile it together and it stinks up the neighborhood, spread it out and enriches the world. 
In other words, it's used as, as fertilizer. It helps, uh, it's a cause for growth. And so we have a choice. We can focus on ourselves within the church and raise a stink, <laughs> or we can focus on Jesus in and outside of the church walls and live a sent life and impact our world. And as we think about this, through you, through our campus here in Barberton, Think about where Jesus is going this week. Think about where Jesus is going this week through you, through, through this campus, your, your neighborhood, your job, your club, stores and gas stations you frequent, Speedway and Sheets and Get-Go and Acme and Giant Eagle and Walmart and Target and you name it. Jesus is going to the rec center, to the Y, to the, to the Planet Fitness. He's going to the soccer game, the football game, the, the gymnastics class. He's, he's going with you to Summa Hospital or Cleveland Clinic or Universal, Universal Hospital, University Hospital. He's going to your school. He's, he's going on Facebook and Instagram, social media, wherever you are. You can be Jesus to the people around you. It's a story that involves the church, God's people being sent into a world that he desires to redeem. You see, we see this in Jesus' words in, in John 17, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Well, why was he sent? Why did he come? John 3.17 says, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Again, a little bit later on, Jesus says it again, Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And Jesus is repeating himself because this is such an important point. He wants us to recognize our identity as children of God who have been sent into the world. As his followers, he's calling us to something. And we learned last week that we are called and sent to evangelize, and which other... In other words, simply means to spread the good news of Jesus, to tell our stories, to, to live it out. And so Joel challenged us to pray for our three, and there's, there's more of these uh, woot hoops or bracelets back there to remind you to pray for people in your life, that there would be opportunity to talk about what you've seen and heard in Jesus. Now, that being said, if you're here this morning, you're like, whoa, <laughs> I was just here to check things out. I, I don't really get this Jesus and God thing yet. I've, I've not committed my life to him, so what's this all about? You know, we're, we're so glad you're here. Because this morning, you get to listen in on the team huddle. You get to, you get to be in the locker room to get the inside scoop of what does it mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be sent? What's our purpose? What's our priorities? And so this morning, I want to take the conversation a little further. Last week, we heard what we were sent for. This week, we're going to talk about <clears throat> where we're sent to. You see, because we've been sent into the world, but... Like, what does that mean? Lots of Christians have this weird relationship with the world. In fact, there's a variety of ways Christians have historically and, and practically responded to what it means to, to live in a world that doesn't recognize or follow Jesus. In fact, some people, they choose to isolate. 
They isolate themselves. They, they start dressing funny and, and don't associate with anyone who's not like them. They quarantine themselves from the world and, and its influences. And in other words, they bunker in and wait for Jesus. They isolate themselves. Some people insulate. They don't necessarily live isolated, but, but while living in and among the world, their goal is to insulate themselves from the world. I grew up in, in this type of environment. Uh, Grandma didn't let us play cards. <laughs> that was a no-no. <laughs> you went to rated G movies. Dancing also was, was taboo. And, and there was a saying that don't smoke, don't dance, don't chew, don't drink, and don't date the girls who do. And as a result, this Christian subculture was born. We, we listened to Christ, Christian music and went to Christian bookstores and, and bought Christian comics. And honestly, sometimes it was just weird. <laughs> so sometimes people isolate or insulate themselves from the world while others infiltrate, irritate, and infuriate. Their mission in the world is to infiltrate and, and fight the world, to yell at it, to tell it how screwed up it is. And these are typically people who are more identified by what they're against than about the gospel and what it's for. Finally, there's those who integrate, those who are bent on making Christianity cool. You know, just blend it, make it hip, make it marketable. Make some money from it. And the fact is, none of these are healthy ways of interacting with the world to which we've been sent. So what was Jesus' idea? Fortunately, he, he tells us in John 17. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full assurance of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. What is Jesus talking about? What, he's, what is he talking about, our relationship, our, our interaction with the world? He says, I want them in the world. I want them in it, not isolated or insulated from it, but in it. But he also says they're not to be a part of the world. They're not to integrate themselves with the world. Don't become an unrecognizable follower of Jesus. But he also says, I'm sending them, Father, like you sent me. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to redeem it, not to, not to irritate or infuriate, but to bring truth and grace. I, I like to picture it this way. It's like a boat in the ocean. The boat is in the ocean. It's not hovering above the ocean. It's in the ocean. But we're not part of the ocean. We're not of the ocean. We're in it, but we're set apart from it like that boat in the ocean. But <laughs> if, if somebody drops the anchor and, and it, it 
pokes a hole in the bottom of the boat, guess what? The world, the ocean starts to leak in and we start to become a part of the ocean. And that's where the trouble begins. Jesus is saying, I'm sending them into the world and my prayer is that they would be sanctified, that they would be a set apart for God's purposes. So we've been not, so we've not, excuse me, we've not been sent to isolate or integrate or insulate or infuriate. No, we are sent to influence. We're sent to influence by making the invisible Jesus visible. Well, that's kind of an odd, that's kind of an odd point. The invisible Jesus visible. What do I mean by that? Well, pastor and author J.D. Greer describes it this way. Anybody remember the old television show, Invisible Man? <laughs> yeah, this, is a, this guy, Invisible, you, you couldn't see him. When somebody wanted to make the Invisible Man visible, what would they do? They'd throw paint on him or oil or something, and they would make him visible. And see, I, wanna, I, wanna, <clears throat> I want us to use that today as an illustration, a picture of Jesus in the local church. Because we're the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible to our community. Greer says, when local churches equip their people to embody the gospel in the streets, they make the movements of an otherwise invisible Christ visible to the community. And one of the ways we like to say it around here is we live to make Jesus make sense, making the invisible visible by living in such a way that we shine the light bright on Jesus. And so to get a sense of what it means to make the visible, make visible the invisible Jesus, I want us to take a quick trip back to the Old Testament. And so this morning, I want us to look at a passage in a, a small little book called Micah. So grab your Bible or device, or you can look up here on the screen, Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. See, God gave Micah, a prophet, a message for his generation. And he wrote it down so the people could, wouldn't forget it. And Micah, the, the context is he lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. He was a country boy from a little town outside of Jerusalem. And if you were to meet Micah, this is what he'd be like. He was, he was stern, he was blunt, he was direct, he was plain spoken, no nonsense kind of guy. He said what he wanted to say. He loved the common man. He hated corrupt politicians. In fact, his book is fundamentally a condemnation of, of religious and political leaders who used their positions to take advantage of others. And so Micah was a prophet of social reform. In fact, there were three things going on in the nation of Israel at that time that he writes to that really won't sound that strange to us today. There was in international tension. There was this international tension. The nation of Israel was caught between three warring nations. And the way that they got through it is they paid their way for peace. They were paying them off. Don't attack us. There was religious corruption. In other words, the pastors were taking bribes and they said whatever the people wanted to hear. They were integrators trying to make the message popular, make the message cool. Then there was moral chaos. 
because it was every man for himself, the, the rich ripping off the poor, leaders taking bribes, everyone cheating everyone else. You couldn't trust anyone. Micah's world was a mess, and it wasn't getting any better. Micah wrote to a world facing huge problems, but in the midst of all of this mess, God gives a message to his people, telling them what he wants and expects from them. And see, we can learn from this. He tells them that he wants them to influence this violent and, and corrupt world by reflecting his heart for the nations. The first thing God tells them is what he doesn't want. And so we read in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, he says, What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of, of my soul? And the answer is a resounding no. <laughs> you see, they were trying to, to play, let's make a deal with God. They actually thought that God's pleasure could be bought just like everything else. But God didn't want their sacrifices. He didn't want their religion. He didn't want their religious gifts. God doesn't want religious relationship maintenance. He wants us. He wants our lives. And it should sound familiar because Jesus says a lot of the same thing. Matthew 23, one example. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You, you count out, okay, nine grains of rice, one grain of rice for God. You're, you count it out, this mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so Jesus says you can tithe, you can do some right things and miss the very embodiment of the heart of God, a heart for God expressed in a way that one goes about living and living for him. And so again, verse 6 asks, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? And, and the answer God gives is in verse 8. He has showed you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah writes, what, what's good? <laughs> what does God require of us? What reflects a heart for God? First of all, God says, act justly. In other words, we are sent to take up the cause of justice. The Hebrew word for justice here is, is mishpat. Often in the Old Testament, this word was applied to God's very own character. In other words, God is just. He's absolutely fair. He's absolutely righteous in everything he does. And so to act justly is to treat people right because you know God and, and you reflect his heart. In the Bible, this concept is applied in some very practical and concrete ways. Caring for the poor. Remembering the, the widow and the orphan. Not plowing the corners of your field to leave some food behind so hungry people can come and get some food. Paying a fair rate wage, having honest scales, no cheating, no extortion, refusing to take advantage of those less fortunate. And so we live in a world where injustice, large and small, goes on every day, everywhere. And Micah says, this is what God requires of us. Do justice. 
be an agent of, of what's fair and right. And say, well, I can't, I can't correct all the injustice of the world, but we can do something. I can be thoughtful about what's going on in this world. I can ask God to, to help me to treat others fairly. I can have the courage to stand up uh, for people who are getting treated unfairly at my school or in my office, my neighborhood, my home. I can give some of what I have to others who have no food or new, no home or, or no hope. You see, the sent church of, has a gospel responsibility to its community to love and serve all men and all women in the name of Jesus. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God's heart for the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable. We don't have time to look at them all today, but one is Proverbs 31.8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. And then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus takes up, he also takes up the needs of the marginalized and mistreated. Our last series, Jesus in Between, we saw story after story of Jesus standing up for the abused and the ignored. Jesus knocked down racial divides. He helped people no one else would help. He elevated the status of women and children. He stood in the way of the abused. And so... <clears throat> We see all that, and then here's the $1 million question. How can we do that? How can we be like Jesus and act justly? How can we do that without being stupid? You see, championing justice is not picketing and protesting and simply yelling about injustice. Justice is making the invisible Jesus visible in our world. And so, so just some practical ways, what, like what that, does that look like? It, it looks like not just seeing the poor lady down the street, but offering the helper. <laughs> I, I was challenged by this. I'll never forget. I was in a small group. I led a small group in a uh, small church in Philadelphia. And we were taking prayer requests. And somebody's like, I have a friend. And, and she has this financial need. And... and um, you know, it was, it was a great need for her, but it really wasn't all that much. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's pray for, for Lisa's friend. And, and so we started to pray, and my friend Bob was like, wait, wait, wait a second. He goes, I have $20 in my wallet. And he puts it in the middle. <laughs> next thing you know, we're all diving for our wallets and purses and stuff, and it's like, next thing we know, we met the need. And rather than just pray about it and not worry about it, we're like, no, God wants us to answer the need. We have the ability, we have the resources, let's do something about it. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's what God is asking us to do. He wants us to answer our own prayers. <laughs> See the need if possible, meet the need. Yeah, it looks like not just paying lip service, service for racial justice, but actually believing it and, and making friends with someone who's different than me. I have a friend, Jay, who trains churches on how to work with internationals. 
Uh, he shares a story. He'd given a workshop at a church in, in Virginia, and he shared the story. How Mosher, a captain for the county sheriff's department, walked into his upscale market to buy a cup of his upscale coffee on his way to work. For the first time, after taking the workshop, he saw the sushi bar with the Asian behind the counter. Hal walked up and greeted the man. He asked his name, where he, where he was from, and if anybody had ever welcomed him to America. Hal learned that his name is Wynn. He's from Burma, and that nobody had extended a welcome to America greeting. By the way, that's a, an icebreaker that Jay teaches in his, in his workshop. Well, that night, <clears throat> Hal searched the internet on how to say hello in Burmese. The next morning, Hal greeted Wynn in Burmese. The man immediately took off his food gloves, came around the counter, grasped Hal's hands, and invited him into his home for dinner. Hal and his wife went to Wynn's home for dinner several nights later, and Hal asked Wynn, Wynn, you've been in America for about three years, right? How many friends do you have? Wynn looked at Hal and responded, you, Hal, are my best friend. Jay continues, Win is now in the presence of spiritual truth, spiritual light, spiritual freedom. Why? Because someone was willing to engage in a conversation, to show an interest, to show that he cared, to take the opportunity. What a reminder to me. What a reminder to us to take time to invest in people, people who aren't like us. You see, acting justly also looks like not just signing a petition about bullying, but sitting with a bullied kid in your school. I recently heard a story from a book entitled The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, and, and one of the stories talks about a second grader who had been uh, adopted from Russia. He had he'd grown up all his life in this orphanage. He had maybe 15 minutes a day of adult interaction. And because of that, he, he developed slowly, and next thing he knew, he's in this ad adopted family in the United States. He's, he's going to second grade, and, and the kids didn't like him. He was immature he was, he, for his age, and he was just irritating, and, and he was struggling. One day, the psychologist came into the classroom, had this little boy share with the little girls and boys in a second grade class, his story, where he had come from, why he was like the way he was. And the psychologist and I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what this looked like, but he talked to these second graders about the basics of brain development. <laughs> I don't know what that talk looks like to a second grader, but it made an impact. And see, as a result, these young boys and girls had a better understanding of what was going on. They started to hang out with him. They started to encourage him and help him. And the story ends by saying by high school, he was just like all the other kids. <laughs> you see, we will always be better able to love people when we seek to understand them, to understand their story. We can't share the love of Jesus without personally getting involved. You see, we are sent to take up the cause of justice. But what, also, <clears throat> what else reflects the heart of God and makes visible the invisible Jesus? Micah asks, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? And God says to act justly and to love mercy. 
To love mercy, again, it speaks to the way we treat others. We are sent to help hurting people. We are sent to help hurting people. The, the original word here, the Hebrew word here is chesed, which, which means loyal love or patient love or faithful love. It means loving the unlovely even when they don't love you back. It speaks to our obligation to care for people who may not in turn care for us. And see, the Lord requires of us to love mercy, to fall in love, to lose ourselves in the beauty of God's mercy and love, and in turn, show that same love and mercy to others. It's the attitude behind the action of justice. Because you see, the world can't see mercy apart from people who share it. And so we're to be those people. Love people with the mercy that you've been shown by God. Again, what does that look like? We look back at what Jesus did and, and, and when he called his first followers and took them with him. We, le- we read all of these stories in Luke 5. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy, a skin disease. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus touched people other people avoided. I mean, I was thinking about that. I've been married to Jennifer for 29 years. When she has a cold, I don't want to kiss her. (laughs) I don't want her cold. It's like, stay away. This person had leprosy, a disease. And Jesus is like, be clean. Know that I love you, that I care about you. Jesus touched people others avoided. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Jesus helped those who couldn't help themselves. Later on in the same chapter, the Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors and, and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people who belong to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus associated with people other people wouldn't. Jesus showed mercy and love to people who needed it most. Jesus took his followers, his disciples, to people who needed help, people who were hurting You see, following Jesus, he's going to walk us into some messes. He's going to to take us to, to help people that others will not. Following Jesus, he's going to take us to associate with people that other people try to avoid and might unsettle some very religious people. Here's what's interesting. Jesus took his disciples, his followers with him through this. And and when we get to Acts, when we get to the early church, we see his disciples doing the exact same thing. In Acts 2, it says the early church met together often. They sold property and gave to those who need. They were helping the hurting, helping those without hope and and helping. They took communion together, ate together, worshiped together publicly publicly and in homes. They went to great lengths, even unusual lengths, to perpetuate the spirit of Christ in their world. 
That's the spirit of the early church. But as they started to serve and help people, that more people came and it got overwhelming and they, they couldn't do it all. The apostles are like, we're overwhelmed. We're, we're neglecting other things so that we can do this. They couldn't meet all the needs. And then the complaints came. In Acts 6, they address it by saying that helping others is not just for those who are vocational ministry leaders, but for everyone. They decided to decentralize helping other people, and the result we read in verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. In other words, the movement of the church ignites when the ministry of helping others is decentralized. In other words, when it becomes everybody's responsibility. <laughs> you see, the danger is that the church sits while, while pastors try to do all the work. But listen, <laughs> this is so important to understand. A lot of times pastors are the blame. Because we get addicted to being needed. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, who doesn't like to be needed? But it's not healthy. And so here's where we've got to allow the church to be the church. Sometimes the best answers to our needs and our issues is being part of a loving, caring, supporting community of believers who can come alongside us and love us well. Now, man, if you're not in a, in a life group, if you're not in a small group, then man, get in one. Be a part of, of a community of people who pray for each other, who love each other. And then, like, who are you pouring your life into? Who are you helping? And so my job and the job of all pastors is, is to equip, to equip and train sent people to do what they were sent for. That's the job of a pastor, uh, to equip the sent. We see it in Ephesians 4. So Christ gave himself, gave him, <coughs> Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why did he give? Why did he give pastors? Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So you see, every one of us has a part to play. Well, how do we do that? How do we, how do we care for people? You might want to get out your notes and write this down. This is, this is a big point. We get better at helping people by helping people. <laughs> That's it. We get better at helping people as we help people. And sometimes the best thing that you can start doing is start serving. Uh, a long time ago, I read, a, I read an article about why South Americans are overall so much better at soccer than we are. And the study suggests that while we have soccer programs and soccer leagues that are highly organized, South Americans just love soccer. <laughs> they love to play. And so whenever or wherever they are, they're always playing a, a pickup game of soccer. You get a group of kids together in an alley with a, a, a ball of aluminum foil and some cardboard boxes. What are they doing? 
they're playing soccer. <laughs> they're always looking to play. Now, what if we were always looking to serve? What if we developed a lifestyle of, of service? I, I think we would become really, really good at caring for people. Here's some other practical tips. Number one, simple, be there. Be there, be in the picture, be in the snapshot. You know, when, when they look back on that situation or tragedy, they, they'll think, hey, oh, man, I remember that was such a tough time, but I remember when, when David and Josiah came to the hospital or, uh, you know, whoever came to the hospital and they prayed with me. I remember when Beth came and, and she brought that meal to our house and we had that need and, oh, it was so good. And he showed up in the picture. You see, we run into messes, not away from them. And you might think, well, man, <laughs> but I don't know what to say. In the midst of a tragedy or something big, like, I don't know what to say. It's just, it's just weird. It's awkward. Guess what? Neither do I. <laughs> when I stand with a family after a tragedy, I have no idea what to say. And that's so often the truth. What can you say? Sometimes it's better to say nothing. It's the power of being present, the power of being in the picture, in the snapshot. Be there. To learn the art of asking good questions and, and then listen. How, how can I help right now? Can, can you put words to your feelings? Help me to understand. You see, people feel cared for when they feel listened to. And so in order to, to apply wisdom to a situation, first I need to pursue understanding what's going on here. Three, practice the art of empathy. You see, we all have a story. Put yourself in their shoes. One of the commands the Bible gives us is, is mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, bring comfort by standing with them through whatever they're going through, feel what they feel, cry with them, laugh with them. Or four, don't feel like you need to have all the answers. One of my pastoral peers tells the story of a guy who came to visit his ministry um, the visitor had a, had a degree in Christian apologetics, which means he could defend his faith really well. He, had, he knew all the philosophies, all the arguments, and so my, the, <clears throat> his pastor took him to a cafe that was known to have some people, like a lot of atheists and people who considered themselves witches and vampires and stuff like that, and it was just way out there. And so he took this apologist, this, this guy, this visitor to there, and he, he meets this atheist, and all of a sudden he's Adam, and he's given all the arguments for Christianity. And as he's giving them, the atheist is finishing his sentences. He had heard all the arguments. He knew all the philosophies. The conversation went nowhere. A couple weeks later... <clears throat> pastor went back to the cafe and he noticed one of the young women in his church who had just said yes to Jesus was at this cafe and guess who she was talking to? She was talking to this atheist who knew all the arguments and, he, and he's like, man, I gotta go rescue her. But as he got closer, he realized they're in deep conversation. He's like, I'm gonna leave this alone. And later he talked to her and said, what were you guys talking about? 
She said, oh, he launched into all these philosophies and all these arguments and stuff like that. And she goes, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Says, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what you're saying is way over my head. I'm, I'm new to my faith. I don't understand. But here's what I do understand. You seem lonely. And it stopped that guy in his tracks. And the story goes on that this, <clears throat> this atheist began to investigate more about Christianity because he met someone who didn't have all the answers, but who cared. And it changed him. You see, you don't have to have all the answers. Be, be present, seek understanding, show love. Last thing, always treat people with grace and point to truth. Be gracious in conversation. Get permission to, to speak into their lives before you just run in, guns blazing. You see, we can make a point or, or we can make a difference. We want to make a point, we want to make a difference with grace and truth. <clears throat> I think it's, it's pretty cool. Um, we want to equip you for hurting, to help hurting people. And it's one of the reasons we're going to do a series in October that addresses mental illness. Mental illness is this huge epidemic in our culture, in our country, that has often gone ignored in the church. We don't know what to do with it. And so we want to help equip our churches to know how to help and, and care for and support as much as we can individuals and family who face mental health issues. We have so many opportunities to help people. To love mercy by showing mercy. Whether it's praying with someone or, or visiting at the hospital or taking a meal or uh, helping a widow or elderly or sickly person do some small home repairs, uh, clean gutters, pull weeds for an hour. You know, the more we open our eyes, the more opportunities we'll see to throw paint on the invisible Christ and make him known. As far as of Jesus, people who make up the church as sent people, were sent to take up the cause of justice, were sent to help hurting people. Lastly, Micah says, walk humbly with your God. Act justly puts emphasis on the action to treat people as made in, in God's image equitably and, and fairly. Love mercy, walk humbly, and it puts the emphasis on the attitude. You see, to walk humbly means to recognize that, that we all are equally in need of God's grace in our lives. So we put ourselves in a position to serve others. To walk humbly means to live with the attitude of a servant. I was challenged by this quote by Richard Foster who says there's a difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When choosing to serve, I retain control about whom I serve and when I serve. But when I choose to be a servant, I have given up all rights and all control. In other words, service is not about just adding another activity to my schedule but fleshing out servanthood in my life where, where God has placed us on, on his terms. It's a lifestyle of, of humility, of, of serving, and acts of service. Another way of putting it is we're sent to humbly contribute to our culture by humbly approaching our culture 
And see, humbly comes from the word meaning modestly or carefully. It, it means to have a right view of yourself because you have a right view of God. The opposite is pride, having too large of a view of yourself because you have too small a view of God. And when God is big, your reality and perspective change and, and pride becomes impossible. It's saying, God made me, I belong to him. Every good thing I have in life comes from the hands of the Almighty, of the Father. It's learning to serve the way that God has gifted you. Learning to serve wherever and whenever God gives us opportunity with the resources and the gifts that he's given us. Humility enables us to be who we are in Christ. It enables us to use what we've been given to love others and love God. You see, because influencing the world through serving has, was the original mandate from the very beginning, given to us by God in Genesis, Adam was given the mandate to work the ground, to cultivate the garden, to explore, to steward, to discover, and make it beautiful. And so our goal is not to simply criticize culture or control culture, but to care for it, to cultivate it, to make a contribution to it. See, we're to influence culture with the God-given, God-directed gifts and resources he's given us. Let me tell you what practically that looks like, and we'll finish up. Pastor Chuck Swindoll writes, it's my opinion that the best evangelistic center in the greater metropolitan Boston area is not a church. It's a gas station. It was owned and operated by a man named Bob who caught the vision early in his life that his vocation, his job, and his calling being sent by Jesus were to be welded together. As time passed, his station became the place to go for gas, new tires, other car service. I've seen a half dozen cars lined up bumper to bumper near two pumps in front of that little station just waiting to be served by Bob. He has no banners out, no Jesus saves flags, no signs, no Christian fish, no sign that says, bring your car to Bob, take your soul to Jesus. None of that. He simply did his job. And he did it well. And people knew he was in partnership with Jesus. He led dozens of people to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, by working ethically, fairly, with integrity, working hard, he made the invisible Christ visible and opened the door for life-changing conversations. What's your reputation? Are you pointing people to Jesus because your attitude is different? You work hard at what you do. How do you bring honor to God with your talents and gifts? When you paint, let, let the beauty and creativity of what you're painting be an expression of worship to God. When you sing or act or dance, and yes, you can dance. <laughs> May these express a humility and praise to the giver of these gifts. When you play ball, work hard. Humbly play your best. Be that team player who changes the culture of your team. So I ask the band to come up as we close here. How does God want to use you, the place where you're at? At this season in your life, where you're at, doing what he's gifted you to do. See, you've been sent. 
It could mean that God wants you to proclaim his name to the nations in Africa or Europe or, or Asia. But more specifically, today, in this place, at this time, you've been sent. Sent to be a representation of Jesus where you live, where you work, where you play right now. You've been sent to ask justly, to act justly, to take up the cause of justice and, and treat people with respect and dignity. You've been sent to, to love mercy, to show mercy and, and love people because you yourself have been incredibly loved by the Father. We're to help hurting people. You've been sent to walk humbly with your God to contribute to your culture and service by using the gifts and talents and God has given you for this time and this place, for his honor and for his fame. You are sent, we are sent, to influence the world we live in by making the invisible Jesus visible. Let's pray.